Before we get rolling, um, I really want to just take a moment to talk about the big, is it a pink elephant? Is that what you call it? Big, big white. Let's talk about a big elephant in the room. White elephant. Here it is, whatever it is. It snowed this week. Is that crazy? Um, for those of you, apparently for those of you who lived south, further south, the further south you got, the more snow you got. So I uh, was coming out of a restaurant picking up uh, dinner for the night, and I walked outside, and there were like these massive, I mean really big snowflakes just falling. And I stood there, and I looked at them. Everybody was out looking, and I thought that I was like being punked. Like there was someone on the roof throwing, and I, and I literally said, is it snowing? And everybody looked at me like, yes, you idiots, you know? <laughs> It was so awesome. So we ran home. Literally, I'm like, I, I don't know how long this is going to last. So we, I drove too, too fast going home and, and got to the house and bust in the door and literally screamed at Jen, like, get outside. And she looked at me like, what is going on? It's awesome. I don't know if you got to experience the snow at all. Um, wasn't it fun? We um, made a snowman. And we got like, I, I think we got close to four inches at our house. It's crazy snowman with leaves all on it and everything else. And, but it was just crazy. I mean, I grew up in Colorado. It wasn't like that when it snowed. The first snow was kind of like, oh, here it comes, you know. Uh, but just to get out and just play, our kids were berserko. If you saw the video Jen posted, she was a little weirdo. Um, just giddy. It was a lot, of, a lot of fun. I realized there are a couple differences between snow in Colorado and snow in, in Texas because I grew up in Colorado I just remember shoveling snow, like constantly. Those, who of you grew up in the north was a lot of snow? A handful of you know. It's still fun, right? But a couple of differences. And I was trying to figure out why is it, it's like, well, we don't get it that often, so we're really excited about it. But I think subconsciously, we knew there will be no school tomorrow. <laughs> we like knew, I knew the second it started, I'm like, that's it, it's over. And it, I felt like I was going to get to skip school, because it's, <laughs> Because what that really means is you get to sleep in maybe a little bit, depending on what you do for a living, I guess. Um, but there was two differences. One, I knew school. I went to school in Colorado for 10 years, and we had one snow day. And it required 10-foot snow drifts. Because by the time you woke up, they were all salted, and, and they, we were just prepared. And, and so one snow day. But then the second thing... I realize a big difference between Colorado and here is the, is the energy you put into your, into your snowmen. You know, like Colorado, all these big, and I, we made the snowman. We want to have the snowman. And the difference between um, Colorado and Texas is the day after, because here's our snowman. <laughs> it's kind of sad, isn't it? <laughs> now, I learned a lesson from my daughter today about attitude. I came out and I said, look at our snowman. I said, isn't that sad? She goes, no, it's a great memory. <laughs> Did that embarrass you? I'm sorry. Did it help by me calling out that it embarrassed you? <laughs> Anyways. Um, we are, it was just, I think that was, a special, that was a special thing for us, wasn't it? That was kind of fun. I don't know. I don't think it has anything to do with the sermon. Um, let's pray and then we're going to read our scripture from today. Isaiah chapter 61 starting in verse 1, as we continue our Advent. Father, we ask, that, um, we ask that you would be with us, but God, your word promises that you're here when we're gathered in your name, and we're all here. We're here for different reasons, um, and we're, we're coming at you from different perspectives. 
and with different needs and with different history with you and we see you differently, but we just pray that you would be seen, that each person who comes to these doors would encounter you in, in one way or another. So we pray that you're glorified as we read these scriptures, as we consider your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah, um, which is just an amazing book, uh, a prophet of the Lord who spoke truth to the nation of Israel in a time when they needed it desperately, and God was speaking very loudly about some very specific things. We read in Isaiah chapter 61, starting verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. We know in the future, there's more here, we're coming to it. We know in the future that this is a prophetic word, not only of what is to come for here for Israel, but of, the, of Christ, the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus coming. And it's really interesting, as I was reading this scripture this week, how, um, how the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first sermon in Matthew 5, is really paralleling some of these some of these concepts and some of these words, to proclaim the good news of the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release the darkness for, for the prisoners. We know that ultimately Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. It's important we know when we see this, this, this phrase, uh, um, to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God, that this is not a threat to us. This is actually a promise. And not a promise like I'm going to bring vengeance to you, but a promise of all the good that comes in that moment in which God is seen for who he is. And to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So we're in this season of Advent. It's a season of waiting. And we've been going through the scriptures from the lectionary that, that give us a guide of, of where we get to focus with the, with the church at large around the world. Similar scriptures, Jason always talks about this, that we're just identified with one another, these scriptures that, that have bound us together for, for, for so long. Um, and it almost appears in this time, in, in, in this month, that there's this waiting that, if we're not careful, can come across as a little redundant. And it's, okay, okay, we're getting there, okay, we're waiting, we're waiting. And there's this season, of, first of all, that there's something intentional and something really good about being forced to wait. The funny thing is, we all wait a little differently, Right? I don't know how you wait. I, I wait differently than most people. For example, um, I have, I'm a huge college football fan. I have friends who are huge college football fans. Um, two of them specifically are Trey and Trace. Trace is an A&M fan. I'm a Longhorn fan. And Trey is an Alabama fan. But as, as the summer is, go, you're going through the summer as you're approaching the fall and the beginning of kickoff, I'm in the spring, you could ask Trey how many days he'll kick off and he will tell you. He knows. Like he does the whole thing. I do a weird thing. I go into denial like it's not coming. Now that's not because, it probably is because we're so terrible. 
But even when we were good, okay, I kind of go in denial. Like, how many days? Well, I don't know. How's the draft or how's the recruiting going? I don't know. I don't like to think about it so that it could just sneak up on me and it's like, yeah, it's now. Because that time of waiting, and it's interesting how forcing us to wait does something uh, very specific. It reminds us to think constantly about what's coming. And so sometimes waiting can be, um, it can be tough, but it, I think it depends upon what you're waiting for. And your, your experiences on encountering what you're waiting for. And what your hope is in what you're waiting for and what your understanding is of what is coming, right? And so waiting during Advent, Advent forces us all to deal with that. Now, if we don't do Advent, we don't have to. We could just get on to Christmas and celebrate and move on, right? This is, a, this is something we need to be doing as a church. And it, hopefully it forces us to think about the things that we don't always think about, the one whom we're waiting Maybe even, let's call it baggage that we have and how we approach that season or that thing that it represents. Week one of the lectionary, they give us topics for each week. Week one was we need the end to come, establishing this need for this thing. Week two is getting ready uh, for the end to come. And so I asked the question, the end of what? Originally, the prophet is referring to Israel, so on a little give and take here, we ask the question, the end of what? For Israel specifically, what were they hoping for the end of? Anyone? The end of exile? Oppression. Of oppression? What else? Of occupation. They were occupied by, which we'll get into a little bit. What else? What about like just the common person there? What? What, what other things are they hoping for the end of? What about from a spiritual standpoint? Okay, despair. What else? Injustice. So Israel's waiting for a Messiah to come, right? And there's all these things, even, I, I almost wonder spiritually, even self-preservation because the Messiah was coming. So there's, the, so there's the end, they're waiting for the end. And then week three, today we're talking about, we're going from we need the end to come to getting ready for the end to now the good news for those who are being saved. And next week, the glorifying and the promised end again, the end to come. So there's this promise. We know that this is good news to Israel because the Messiah coming represented the end to their waiting, right? And all of this. But why do we need this Advent today? Right, because we live on this side of Christ. Why do we need this Advent today? What is the relevance? Why can't we just celebrate Christ? Why can't we just move on with our lives? And it's, I think it's a constant reminder of this big picture. There's a reminder of God's plan and that there's more to come. Wherever we are today, there's, there's, this is not the end of the story. I think it's a reminder that, that God's plan is Jesus and that there's more to come. And, and this is what I can't get over in, in my mind. If there was, after the point of the Messiah returning, there was a certain reason and, and, and thing that, uh, that Israel was waiting on and wanting it to come at a certain form and a certain time so that it was over. And when Jesus said it is finished, it's like, yeah, it's finished, this is it. Thinking that was it, 
But after that is when so much more happened. After that is when the salvation was opened up to everyone else, right? So if the end was here, what about the Gentiles? What about us? What about the church we see today? So there was a plan for more. There is a process for more. A few years ago, we did a, a, a serious study called The Story of God. And it's kind of, we kind of have a mixed emotions. I have mixed emotions when I think back on this, on this sermon series we did. And what we did was we, we looked at from Genesis to Revelation in story form. We told the story of God from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it was really difficult at times because you can only see yourself in that in certain places. Um, and, and the goal over 12 full weeks, I think, was essentially to see this is one big story. It's one big redemptive arc so that we, we don't think about at any point is the end. But the end is the end, not where we are today. And it exposed the reality that we live in this age of grace. And, and to think about what it would have been like to live in faith before Christ came. And the difference between now to live in that season after Christ came. And we have salvation, but before the end, right? So now we have the opportunity to live in faith, to worship in faith, to be obedient in faith, to grow in faith, to learn in faith, and all this. Because one day, it will no longer be in faith. It will just be in knowing. And so there's a certain age, there's a place in which we are a part of this greater story. And the phrase that we continue to re remember is either we find ourselves in the greater story or we will find ourselves in a lesser story, right? And so we, 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 we went through this storyline and what we found is the most difficult task was to actually find ourselves in his story instead of injecting him into our story. That's one of the most difficult things for me why is that? For those of you who can identify with that, why is, it hard, why is it easier for you to inject him into your story or to think about it that way instead of injecting yourself into the bigger story? Why is that? Ego. No, it's not ego. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Probably. Ego and everything along with ego, right? What else? <laughs> what else comes to mind? That's pretty all-encompassing. Nothing else? Self-preservation? What? Fear. Fear. We, we need to explain that? I don't think so. I think take it wherever you need to. What else? It's just hard to see outside of your own experience. It's hard to see outside your own experience, isn't it? Because I'm living my life. Because I'm doing my thing, right? And so, but there are some people who didn't struggle with that as much. Like, Israel, if we're to learn from Israel, like, it appeared their whole culture and existence was to figure out how to be the people of God. And yet they were just getting their butts kicked left and right. They were just, just things didn't seem to be right. How is it so difficult? And I think this, especially as someone who gets to travel around the world a lot. And if you've ever been in a third world country, it's so interesting to me how Christianity can thrive in this just exuberant, like in places of need. I mean, real deep there are places where you start wondering if God's even in America anymore. And I, I know he is, he is. But I'm just saying, I've experienced spiritually things outside of where, of my story, where I'm like, wow, that's life change. It's one of the reasons why I think we need to be exposed to different things. We live our lives daily 
and we're so consumed with ourselves, maybe we could fill in the, well, our need is not, we have different kinds of need or we have different kinds of things, but there's something uh, to learn about it that maybe the advantage of Israel was that they simply, they simply lived waiting for the Messiah, knowing their need, um, knowing that, that they were a part of the bigger story instead of God just was to be injected into their own personal story. Knowing what we know about them at the time, the history, why were they yearning? Well, we know that they were slaves of Egypt. We know that they were occupied by Rome. I just wonder, did they really feel like God's people at those moments? I wonder if they ever sat back and, and they just thought, we're God's people, right? God, we're your, we're your people, right? Where are you? Where are you right now? I wonder if they were so bold to think or to ask. But I think anything, even in that moment, in respect to what they knew they were supposed to be or could be, they knew there was a bigger promise ahead. They knew, they knew there was more than what that they were experience. So ultimately, I think Advent is a time to challenge us, all of us, to remember, first of all, one, that God is, is real, and that God is creator, and that he is central, and that he is, he spoke and it was. I read a book years ago um, by a guy named Mike Iaconelli. Um, I think it was called Dangerous Wonder, and, and the whole premise was the storyline of how a child. Um, really believe Superman could fly. And now how at one point, as you grow up, you realize that you know, he just really can't fly or whatever. And now he connected that with our faith and that there's at one point in our childlike faith when we just remember that God is just, he's God and he spoke and it was and it can happen. And then life starts ripping away at you and, and we start wondering, it, you know, these things I learned or these things I've heard, we, we may be, Begin to struggle. First is to remember through different reasons and different ways and experiences. But many times it happens to me when I just take the time to stop and think and to remember. You ever had those experiences where you're like, God came through so big or you saw something so miraculous. You're like, oh, that's it. That's good. There's got to be a God or there. God is very, is very, I'm never going to forget this moment. <laughs> right? How many times, how many times do we go there? I go there a lot. It's a time to remember God is real. It's a time to remember that God has a plan, that there's, more, that there's more to come. And I think today as we think about this good news for those who are being saved, it's a time to remember that God's plan includes us and that he, his driving force is love. It's hard to, sometimes it's hard. If you're a parent, you have a little bit different insight to that than how, as a child, you felt, your parent felt, as a father. Um, and everybody's story is different, but that's just one thought, but that he truly loves you. And so here's where we have to dig in in order to understand Advent in the area of, for those who are being saved, that God is doing something with you, very personally with you. Now, we have to be careful not to make this too kind of man-centric or like our theology. I think in all of our theology, we first have to understand what it says about God, right? But in order to understand what it says about us. 
So we have to be careful not to always to interpret Scripture just through the lens that way. And, and it's honestly a problem we have sometimes in Western Christianity, all right? But somehow God's plan is about us and, and for us and for all creation because here's the bait and switch, I guess. Ultimately, the plan then gives him glory as the creator and as the redeemer. So it's this amazing dance we get to be in. It's kind of like uh, that, um, I was thinking about it, it's like, kind of like the rich kid who in- inherits everything, whether they deserve it or not, that's us. That's the spirit of Advent. <laughs> um, so, so God is glorified, and then Scripture reveals that we are glorified in him. Um, and when you see the scripture talking about that we are glorified, if you were to break that word down, it, it really means um, to, be, uh, to, be, to be cherished, to be trusted, to be valued, to assign value. Um, and this is the part where a lot of us struggle to live, to believe that God loves us so much that his plan truly includes you that it truly includes me, that it truly includes us, and even them, whoever they are. Because it was, the story was not done when Jesus said it was finished. We now are a part of this. There was more to come, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. Many of us know that scripture. It's so foundational to my faith, I just quoted it in King James. That God is doing something in you, and for him this is personal. And I think it brings up another struggle. The first is believing that the plan really includes us. The second is that we, that, that we really don't deserve it. And here's the deal, we don't. That's why there is a plan. If we go back to John 3.16, what do you think it means? What, is the word, what does the word believe mean? What do you think the word believe? Like in, in, in common, like what would the word believe mean to you? Trust. Yeah, to trust. You know what? That's the closest definition you can have when you get back to the original text. To entrust. To, to trust with what? What do you think he would want us or back Israel to entrust them? What would they entrust him with? Your life, your future, trustworthy of your commitment, therefore, because you trust him with your life and your future. What else? Your hope. To, to trust someone with your hope. There's a, there's a difference between having hope in someone or something and trusting in them for your hope. What else? Trusting in what? Okay, that maybe the ground is solid even in uncertainty. What else? Trust what? Trust him with what? Huh? His promises? I think absolutely. Anything else? What are some tangible things in life? Trusting with what? Finances. Our finances. What else? Our children. Our family, our children. What else? 
So other things we could fill into that, if we really did, if our process was learning to trust him with those things and to believe, first of all, Christ for salvation, and then his, all the other promises he says, if we were to entrust him with our finances and our future and our family and all of these things, what would the result then be on us? Anxiety and depression and fr- fr- frustration? No, probably the opposite. We begin to see the dream God has for our lives, right? Our lives, our hope, our future, our relationships, theologically and most specifically for our salvation. When we truly trust him for our salvation, we can get rid of all the lists and the things we gotta do and the ways we gotta perform and the guilt we gotta fear, feel for not being a perfect Christian when he already knows that, right? Ultimately, believing means two major things. One, that Jesus is God, therefore we trust his sufficiency for our eternity. Didn't mean that to rhyme. Um, you know what I'm saying? That we trust him that Ultimately, if it's like, if we could boil it down to one thing, who Christ is and what is different about Jesus is that, that, that Jesus is God and that we can trust his sufficiency for our eternity. And the second thing is that we are not Jesus. And the attitude I think that has to come with that is that we acknowledge our insufficiency. Not because woe is off and all this stuff, but because we can't do it without Christ. It creates a spiritual humility in us that changes everything. What is the difference between a Christian who is humble because he didn't deserve what God has given him versus a Christian who is arrogant because somehow they think that they had something to do with it? This has been the struggle from the beginning of faith. It's the difference between a Pharisee and someone who is not. Okay? Just some thoughts. These are thoughts as we work through um, Advent. That Jesus is God, therefore we trust his sufficiency, that we are not Jesus, we are not God, and so that we acknowledge our insufficiency, which leads to our repentance and our confession and our just admitting that, yeah, we, we are sinners. And we, God, you're a perfect God. And we know that the Bible says that, that sin separates us from you. And, and that we were born into sin, we were born into selfishness and greed. And so we've spent a lifetime overcoming this. And so when we think about this, his sufficiency to save, but it's not just his sufficiency to save, but it's his sufficiency to restore us. We're in this lifetime of trying to overcome this thing that we are not supposed to do it for him, but he does it in us and we do it with him. That he restores us and heals us and brings us back and redeems us. This is where the being saved part comes in where we are restored. See, you and I are in a process. Paul talked about us working out our salvation. Well, what can that mean? If we get saved in a moment, what does that mean? That means there's a process, that there's something happening as we live our life, that as we live our life, the things that are going on is working out the purpose in which God has called us to. And so that's where scriptures, like all things work together for the good for those who... It's not that, oh, that's all. It, It means that God can redeem any situation Not that he would want that pain or that whatever for your life. Some disagree with me on that. I don't think God wants pain in your life. I don't think God creates a lot of things that some people say he does on purpose just to do something to you. He can do that a lot of different ways, but he could take the most terrible thing and he can restore it and redeem it and bring some some beauty out of it. I do believe that. Okay, so he, Jesus God, we are not, his sufficiency to save his sufficiency 
to restore. Us being saved, you are in a process. One theologian said there is a future aspect of salvation that is undeniable, that it's not over. And there's this biblical process, and, and, and I'm not going to dig into this too much, but we need to understand this process in case you've never heard us. There is a moment when we receive Christ where we are declared saved in God's eyes, and he declares us innocent in that moment, and that cannot be undone. It's called justification, where he justifies us. But then this process of living out our life in which we are being saved, in which we are learning, and we are growing, and we are failing, and we are succeeding, and we are struggling, and we are seeking to love each other in the mess... This is called sanctification. It's this being made, being set apart, being made. I hate the phrase, being made holy, because it's like, hey, raise your hand if you're holy. You're just, you're moving in that trajectory, hopefully, right? Somehow. Maybe a jagged thing, but. And then ultimately, the Bible said there will be a glorification in which we're glorified with God. I don't know how that works fully, but there's something where there's a value that will be assigned to us because of that. And yet at times, Correct me if I'm wrong, there are times when we don't feel saved. That's why it's important to remember that when we are saved, it's not a feeling. It's a position we have because of Christ and God. It doesn't go away. Many times we don't feel saved. That's why when I was younger, I asked Jesus to save me at least 3,000 times. I just wanted to make sure it counted. I, didn't, I was really It's bad theology. But there are times we feel not saved, which is not I would argue that if you're saved, you're saved, right? And there are times we feel not loved. And there are times we feel not in process, right? So many, many of us don't feel like we're being restored. Um, when we talked about that snowman, I, I I was just thinking about, you know, sometimes you get all excited in your faith and spiritually and emotionally, whatever, and you, you build that snow down and you, snowman just come out and it's just gone the next day, right? It's like, why even, in Texas, why even put all the effort into that sucker? Because it ain't going to be here long. It's just not going to last. Thanks, Sydney, for perspective. And here's the missed thing in this restoration, in this time, while God is doing other things, he's working in us, but he's working in the person next to you too, and he's working in our city, and he's working beyond, and he's working outside of our church, and outside of denominations, and outside of all this stuff all around the world, but the missed part of Advent many times is that through all of these promises and all these processes, God wants you and I to find him, And when it's written in Isaiah 1, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from the darkness for the prisoners. God has you in mind. And he wants you to know him as that God. He wants you to find hope in that, to know that that's coming. We trust his sufficiency to save, his sufficiency to restore us and to restore the world. Now, as Jen would say, the world is a dumpster fire. Fix it, Jesus. I have a confession. There are times I look at the condition of the world, it looks like God is failing. Like his plan is like, oh, maybe it's metaphorical or something. Um, like we're waiting on something that's never going to happen, like there is no hope. I read recently that expectation postponed is making the heart sick. I feel like that. It does. I feel like that at times. But scripture challenges us to take our thoughts captive and to think so that we can press into what we really know about God, not what we have project onto him by what we see 
with our finite minds and our finite eyes and realities. We could press into what we really know about him, that he hates injustice and pain and suffering. So take heart. There is restoration in the world. It's not on our timeline. It's hard to see. But if Advent reminds us of anything, it's that we are in process and that God is still up to something. Here's the rest of the story from Isaiah 1. We're going to kind of close with the scripture. Verse 8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. Let me take heart in this. I, I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people the Lord has blessed, with must have, which must have been the heart's cry of Israel. And I don't think it's a big stretch to think that whatever is on your heart that would, is seeking what God has promised you, I think this is speaking into that. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. So here is our continued hope today as we wait. As Advent forces us to wait for you, for us, for them, the day will come. There will be an end to confusion, to frustration, to pain. There will be an end to injustice and suffering. When, I don't know. How, I don't know. But we wait and we dream knowing that it will come. Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy. Let's pray.